Kia ora and welcome to Talking Dairy, where we dive into the most important topics on the minds of New Zealand dairy farmers. Now spring carving's on the doorstep, so in this episode we are geeking out on all things colostrum. Are our calves getting what they need? Do calves feed off their dam in the paddock? And what can you do to make sure that your calves are getting the very best start in life? Let's find out from veterinarian and head of vet end research, Emma Cuttins. Emma, thanks so much for coming on Talking Dairy today. It's great to have you here at Newstead. Um, how are you? Good, thank you. Cool. Hey, before we, we dive into talking about all things colostrum, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where do you work and what do you do? Okay, so um, I started as a dairy veterinarian at VetEnt in Te Aumutu. Uh, that was in 2007. Um, and then I worked as a, loved doing that, worked as a dairy vet, got really stuck into programs like InfoVet, which would, you know, suck out farm data and Fonterra data and, you know, worked with herd health and things like that. And, and then along the way, I decided that it would be good to get into research, I guess, largely because, you know, when you're trying to give advice to farmers or in particular when you're working in a big company like ours and you're trying to get some consistency within the vets, it really just has to be science-based, like there's just no other way to do it. And so actually ended up going on a pathway to becoming an epidemiologist, which is a ridiculous word, I realise. But that's the, that essentially what it means is it's the study of disease in populations. So it's, it's really learning how to set up and analyse trial work, learning about disease outbreaks and, and things like that, and then moved on to doing a PhD. And so yeah. have actually started as a vet and have ended up actually working into being a researcher. And so that, that's sort of the path that's taken me here. Are you still a practicing vet or is all of your time spent doing research? Not really anymore. So I still, I love when I see all the farmers that I used to work with. And so if I'm down at the, if I'm down in the clinic, then I'll talk anyone's ear off, but no, not out on farm anymore. So now my job is I head up the research division, so myself and a colleague of mine, Winston, I actually went to university together, we started up this research division at Vedent just to thought, this is what we're going to do, and then it's just grown like a mushroom. And so so now that is my sole job, um, as, long, as with his, and we're about to expand again in numbers. And so we do research on, to be fair, mostly dairy cows, but we do sheep and beef, um, we've done goats before, We've done a little bit of working dog stuff. We're pretty much open to anything, maybe not horses, but but who you know. <laughs> that's just because horses are horses are different altogether. But yeah, that's and so that's the full job now. And how do you decide which areas you're going to commit to researching? Oh, that's a good question. So some of it is decided for us. So a good percentage of our work is commercial work. So drug companies come to us and want us to trial out a product. And some of it is just because we're interested. So we focus really heavily on welfare research. That's just it's just where we like to be. And I guess we have an affinity to dairy cattle because both myself and Winston have a, a background in vetting for dairy cattle. But I don't know, if an opportunity comes across our desk, then we always say yes, because it's always exciting. When we've just recently been doing work with avian influenza outbreak, looking at analysis over in, in a country with that. And so it's just... You can get absolutely anything, which is really exciting. So tell us why we've got you in to talk about colostrum. Like, (laughs) what's your background in in this area? Cool. So I actually did my PhD on calves and colostrum. So we were looking at failure of passive transfer in calves. And what that means is 
looking at have calves got enough antibodies, just to get our definitions right, antibodies are the molecules that are fighting disease. You know, so if you get a bug in or a virus in, the antibodies recognise it and fight it. Right? So I was looking at how many calves actually miss out on having enough antibodies from the colostrum. And then what that does as they progress in life, does that affect them as they get older? And then I guess looking at what farmers are doing or what's happening with the calves that are predisposing them to having this problem and looking at the milk in, in the colostrum as well. We, we had done a little bit of that in combination with Anexa. And so, yeah, ended up doing a, a PhD on that, did a whole bunch of work, and, and that's just continued. Um, and so that's now spread into the work that we've been recently doing, further expanding, looking at what calves are doing with the dams in the paddock. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Um, what's that research looked like? How long has that been going on for? And, uh, I mean, we've had a few articles on this in Inside Dairy, but for those who haven't read those articles, could you tell us a bit about it? Totally. So in 2019 and 2020, we looked at a study on calves feeding off the dams in the paddock. And the reason why we looked into that is when we'd originally done all the research on failure of passive transfer in calves, we found a bunch of risk factors, right? So that might be things like, where were they born? Were they born in, if they, for example, if they're born in Otago in Southland, they were more likely to have this issue, probably you know, weather related. You know, if they were weak and sick and wet when the farmer brought them in, they were more likely to have failure passive transfer. And then I guess it got into the point where we were looking at if the farmer had taken them off the dam quite regularly and fed them colostrum, we actually found they were more likely to have failure of passive transfer than if they were left with the dam. And you're looking at me strangely like everybody else does, but like, what? That's, that's not right. We've been told for 30 years that we need to take them off the dam. And, and part of our original study that made up the PhD actually found out that the reason for that was because what was being fed to the calves was absolute terrible quality. So it was really low in antibodies, horrendously high in bacteria, right? So so that made sense, right? If we were taking them off the dam, then feeding them really crappy colostrum, then absolutely, you can see why they would do worse. But I guess we were hoping to find more management things that might have contributed, right? So we had farms, for example, that were achieving only 5% of their calves had family passive transfer. And then we had right through the spectrum, we were looking at hundreds of farms here, up to about 84% of calves on one farm had failure passive transfer. And we were trying to find out why are some farms doing so well and some farms doing so poor? And so we had all these farm management things as part of the questionnaire, you know, like how often do you pick them up? What are you feeding them with? Is it a male calf rear or a female calf rear? You know, like all of those sort of general farm management, because we were saying, okay, is this farm, is there something that really sets these farms apart of why some do so well and some, some don't? And to be honest, we found hardly anything. We were only finding, okay, farms that were from Otago and Southland and farms that had very big herds. They were more likely to have a problem. But that was all. And I said, that's really strange. But then I guess when you think about the New Zealand dairy system, 70% of calves are only picked up once a day, right? So 70% so, so of farms only pick up once a day. And so it makes sense that 
the biggest influencer of what's happening to the calf is actually out in the paddock. So by all means, yes, we've got to feed them the colostrum. We've got to do all the stuff right in the management. But you're really at the whim of what's happening out in the paddock because you've got such a short window to get colostrum into them. You've got less than 24 hours. And if they're with the dam, that's what what's influencing it. So I guess what we wanted to, to understand a little bit more about was if they're feeding. So previous research had said 50% of calves are not feeding off the dam. This went essentially viral through the industry. Every, all the vets were going out being like, did you know that you should collect them more often because 50% don't feed off the dam? And as a young vet, when I started, I thought, oh yeah, okay, sweet. So I started telling all my farmers that because my senior vet told me that. And then it wasn't until, you know, two or three years ago, where I thought, where did that come from? So I actually, <laughs> I went and looked and found the article that it came from. It was actually a really cool article but it was on 26 calves in wow. one farm in one region. And so you thought, wow, that's really gone nuts through the industry when it wasn't, you know, it really was a limited number of animals and, and farms. And there was nothing wrong with the paper, but it was just mm. how people have interpreted that paper mm. and made it gospel. So we thought we need to cover this off because I've had so many farmers telling me, no, Emma, I know my calves feed off the dam. I've watched them. So we went and had a look. And so... In 2019, 2020, we had four farms in 2019 and four farms in 2020. It's sort of quite funky, but we, we got a scissor lift and put sides and a roof on this thing. And we had people positioned in these carving paddocks <laughs> for 24 hours a day, just watching. And so, you know, we had the numbers on the cows so we could see who they were. We were watching, you know, right from the moment that that cow looked like it was starting to calve. So we knew everything about that cow how long it had taken, the moment the calf dropped, when it started feeding, how many feeds it had. And then when the calf got taken to the shed, we took a blood sample before the farmer fed it. So we had some idea of how successful it was of feeding off the den. And then we, were, we took a blood sample three days later. So then we could say, okay, how successful really was the farmer in changing this whole scenario? And so that's really what the research was about is is understanding what what's going on and then how successful was it all that was the gist of it brilliant maybe uh we've probably almost covered it but why is colostrum so important why does it matter anyway uh, i mean it's a good question to cover so i mean cows are really strange because most mammals can transfer antibodies so effectively they're transferring immunity across the placenta right but for some reason, cows can't do that. The placenta is just organized in a way that these really big antibody molecules can't cross the placenta. So the calf is born with absolutely nothing. So everything they get for their immunity in those sort of first four months or so comes from that colostrum. But it's not as simple as that, unfortunately, because we've got this ticking time bomb situation where the calf needs to absorb antibodies within 12 to 24 hours because the pores in their gut that are allowing these antibody molecules to flow through to the blood start closing. And at the same time, the antibodies in the colostrum are decreasing. Now that's in the udder in a bucket. It doesn't matter where the colostrum is, the antibodies are decreasing. So you've got to get the calves in, get it quick, get it sorted. Now, if they don't have enough 
antibodies for whatever reason. So that could be that they didn't get it quickly enough, you know, so they, they might have been a calf that got excited and, you know, zoomed off in, into a drain or, you know, off into behind the brake and then they can't come back, you know, so they, they might be an awesome calf, but they just weren't able to drink, so they didn't get it quickly enough. They might have drunk, but maybe they drank a few sips and then the mother zoomed off to go somewhere else and they lost the mum, right? So they had some and it might have been quite awesome, but they didn't have enough. Or probably what's very common is that they might have had it quickly enough and they might have had quite a big volume, but it was really, really poor quality. So that's what gives us a situation where a calf doesn't have enough antibodies, so they have failure of passive transfer. And that matters because then they have a reduced ability to have an immune response. So if you're a farm that has a really low challenge, you know, you just, for whatever reason, lucky you don't have a lot of rotavirus or crypto, then you probably will never notice. Mm. But if it's a farm that has quite a high challenge, they'll get knocked over. And so not surprisingly, you see calves that don't have enough antibodies or have failure of passive transfer, they're more likely to die and they're more likely to get sick. And that's shown in New Zealand with our own research as well as overseas. And are they more likely to get sick if they do survive, mm. continue to get sick? throughout their lifetime? We haven't looked at, at that, but I think I'd say yes, um, yes. So one thing that was quite surprising when we did our study was that like, we, we thought they'd be more likely to die, right? That, that's fine. But we, it was the, that relationship was so strong up to 12 months of age. So the time they were 12 months of age, they were three times more likely to die mm. than animals that had had enough colostrum. After 12 months of age, effectively, the effects disappeared. We didn't see anything after that. But up until that point, it was very strong. So it's hard to know exactly how often they get sick or they, you know, we were just looking at the single animal health event. But yes, it's logical to say if they've got lowered immunity, they're more likely to have effects, ongoing effects. Now, they do develop their own immunity over time. But these these sort of effects that you have in colostrum, like they're really quite long term. Mm. There's a lot more going on in colostrum than I think many of us understand. Mm. Yeah, so that, uh, that was my next question. Do you think most farmers are aware of how important this is and also that problem of the increased mortality up to 12 months? I don't think so. I think like we've certainly with the help of Dairy NZ, we've tried to extend out the research a lot. So I think that it has gotten to a lot of farmers. But the interesting thing was that, you know, when you talk about awareness, was that, you know, when we had all these we had 105 farms, you know, with different amounts of value passive transfer on their farms from that 5 to 84%. Now, at the same time we were doing that, we were asking the farms, do you think you'll have a problem with value passive transfer? And as you can imagine, 80% of them said, no, no, we won't have a problem. And we're like, why, why do you think that? And they're like, well, we feed really high quality colostrum. But that was in 2015. And I think that the awareness about colostrum quality, both from uh, antibody and bacterial, has expanded a lot. So I think there's still, there's definitely still a bit of a lack of awareness. But I think that if I was to redo that survey now, sort of six years later, I think the results would be quite different. Mm. What are some of the risks that can affect whether calves get those antibodies that they need? There's a few things. So when we were doing our study, we looked at potential risk factors. And the general just 
stage of carving was important, right? So when things got really busy, when you're right at the peak of carving, they're more likely to have problems, which makes sense, right? Because things get busy, things get missed. If they were sort of weak calves, so like when the farmer was bringing them in and they're like, oh, these calves look sort of weak and a bit average. Yeah, they were they were far more likely to have failure passive transfer. Interestingly, calves that were born to older dams, so that's, you know, sort of five, six plus, were more likely to have failure passive transfer than younger dams. And that's really the opposite of what most people have believed because traditionally people have been like, oh, no, you don't want that hepaglostrum. Disregard that, it's crap. In fact, I was literally just on a farm yesterday and we were talking about vaccination and whether we should vaccinate heifers. And they're like, no, you don't bother with the heifers. The colostrum is crap. And I couldn't help myself. I'm like, actually, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> because the thing is, is like, I can I can appreciate from a point of view that heifers can be bad mums. I get that and they sort of wander away. But colostrum can get diluted if you have big quantities. So, you know, when like you bring in the cow and she's got the most ginormous udder and you take off the colostrum and you're like, this is mint because it's going to feed this whole pen now. That doesn't mean that that calf's colostrum is actually going to, cow's colostrum is going to be better because quite often that very big volumes can dilute out the IgG. So I think that what that indicated was, I think that the younger dams were actually not too bad. So yeah, so that was, that was one of the things. And then we had that risk factor of if the farmer was taking them off and feeding them the colostrum, it was worse. <laughs> but again, that was mostly addressed by the fact that the colostrum quality was really poor that we were looking at. And area, you know, the Otago and Southland were considerably worse. And, and with the new work that we've done, we're pretty confident that that's to do with weather. You know, the ability of the calf to actually stand up and feed from its mum. Mm. Mm. So... On the flip side of that, what can farmers do to ensure that their calves are getting uh, what they need from colostrum? I guess if, if it's just about colostrum, the key is measurement. And if like this happens to like every single animal health thing that I've ever talked about with anyone, the key is to measure it because otherwise you just don't know what's going on. So the first thing I would actually do before I went into anything that the farmer could specifically do was actually see if you've got a problem because... Some people are running systems. They've run that system for 40 years. And you know what? That system works mint. But you just got to check it. So you can do that by testing carbs. You can blood test them when they're over a day old. You know, the vets can come in and blood test them. And actually see if you've got an issue with failure passive transfer. And if you don't, I'd just leave it. You know, like if you're getting less than 20% of carbs with failure passive transfer, just keep your system. It's going awesome. If you're getting more... That's when you need to say, okay, what am I doing? How can I improve this? So the next step would be, okay, if I'm feeding the calves colostrum, what is the quality of that colostrum? And you can figure that out so easily by using a BRICS refractometer. Like it's literally a second. You pop it out of your pocket, you pop a drop on, you have a look, and you can see. And, and what you're aiming for is a BRICS percentage of 22 or more. Now, by BRICS percentage to anyone that's, that's listening, what these things do is they refract light off the solids in a liquid. So, for example, if you're doing it in kiwi fruit, they refract off the sugar content. So people use them in those industries all the time. So when you're doing it in colostrum, they refract off the solids. Now, the solids are made mostly of protein, and the majority of the protein is made up of big antibody molecules. So it gives you a bit of a... A really good idea of how many antibodies in. 
and so you get this percentage of bricks. And 22 and above is what we're aiming for. So that's what you'd start looking at. You start looking at what's the quality. And if you're really keen, you could start looking at how much bacteria is in it. Because we often don't think of bacteria, but bacteria are really important. Because if you get really high quantities of bacteria like coliforms in the colostrum, they actually stop the calf being able to absorb antibodies. So even though you might have heaps of antibodies there, but if you've got the whole bunch of bacteria, they get in the way and they stop it being able to absorb. So those would be the steps that you start. Do I have a problem? If I do have a problem, okay, what's my colostrum? How's my colostrum quality going? And then you'd start working with, well, how, how quickly am I getting it into them? What's actually the volume that I'm giving them? Are actually, are they feeding? Are the ones that I'm having problem on a group feeder and not feeding? Do I need to consider tubing? Do I need to consider individually botting? So it's just, it's really about gathering information and then making your improvements based on that. From what you were talking about earlier with the research looking at calf dam interactions, what advice, you know, from that, what advice would you give about leaving calves on the dam in the paddock? I would give the most annoying advice that there is in that there's just not one size fits all. So when we were doing that study, it was so variable as to whether they fed or not. So first of all, about 63, 64% fed in the paddock, which is higher than we've been led to believe. But the range was anywhere from 40% to 90%. And these, you know, you could say, well, is that to do with how they're picking them up? No, not necessarily. So five of the eight farms picked up once a day. And yet the variability in how they fed was phenomenal. So we had some calves where they'd get up and feed. Half of them had fed within two and a half hours. 75% of them had fed within about seven hours, let's say. We had other farms that were picking up once a day. It took almost eight hours for 50% to feed. You know, it took the 75% feed, it took almost 12 hours. You know, like it was just really strange how different it was. They can feed, but it's not the same on every farm. And so before people would start making the decisions on should I leave them on the farm, Should should I leave the dam, should I take them away from the dam, you want to start collecting some information. So there were other farms that they did take the calves off more regularly and they weren't feeding well. So if I'd suggested to that farm that they should leave them on the dam, that would have been bad to the calves because for some reason on that farm, they just didn't feed well. But I tell you what, when they went to the shed, the farmer had the most top management I've ever seen, right? So these calves were getting on average, 25% bricks. Every single calf, bobbies and heifers, all got this sort of stuff. It was all preserved. It was all the top of the top. And so they had 4% failure of acid transfer. And so you would have never kept those on the dam. So I think that yeah. in terms of advice, it's just it's you have to test. You have to start testing. Like you can test before you feed them colostrum, and then you can test after. Essentially what we mm. did on the trial, and that's the best way to figure out what's best for yeah. your farm. So rather than changing your system, do that do that testing first. That's right. I wouldn't change a thing until you test. How many farmers use a bricks, um, and, and how much do they cost? Oh, such a good question. So back when we first started doing all this research in 2015, you could hedge a bet that hardly any. You know, we would have been lucky to see 1% in the industry. And since then, it's actually being measured because DRNZ do their big survey. And it's gone up in a linear fashion every year. I think now it's at to 21% of farms use, use a bricks, which is phenomenal going from essentially 0% 
five or six years ago to 21% now. They're actually quite cheap. So it depends on where you get them. And it probably depends a little bit on the make and model. But generally speaking, they're about 100 bucks. So most of the vet clinics stock them. Like Shoof, where most people buy their gear, they stock them for about that price. You can get them online. Like you can go look on Amazon or, you know, all those sorts of online things. And they can be a little bit cheaper online, but you got the, I guess, you got the convenience of walking in. Yeah, so super easy, so quick, and I tell you, so addictive. I've, I've not known any farmer that has started using one that's gone back because once you start seeing that variability of the cows coming through, because like a classic would be that, you know, like farmers, they, they see this really gold colostrum, you know, like coloured gold, I mean, and they think, oh, man, that's so good. I've got to use that. And then they put the bricks refractometer on it, and it's not very good. And the reason is is because the yellow colour is because of the fat, and it's actually got nothing to do with the antibodies. And so once you start doing that, you start measuring the cows as they're going into the test bucket. Like it's it's really hard to ever go back to not knowing that anymore. Yeah. And what if you don't get any colostrum that's above that 22% mark? Great question. And that's going to happen. I can guarantee it. When you first start doing it, you're going to be wanting... God, I remember being bailed up in the street about this sort of thing, right? So you, they're like, I've started measuring colostrum and now you're telling... Now I can't find any that's good enough. And... <laughs> There's a couple of reasons for that. So the, the reason sometimes why you see that, first of all, is if you are leaving them with the dam and they're drinking really well off the dam, by the time you milk them, you're essentially getting second milk and colostrum. So it's not, it's almost a good thing that you got low colostrum. So it's a lot harder to find good colostrum when your dams are feeding their calves. But if you don't have above 22%, and this is going to happen all the time, you just give the highest that you can find. So if I was to, I guess an ideal system would be that the cow milks into the test bucket and you measure her. And then if you just, I mean, we've got some farmers who will pour it into a bucket and then line up all the buckets in order of how good it is. And you just feed the best that you've got to the brand new ones and then the rest to, to everything That's else. Cool. Yeah. Are there any common myths surrounding colostrum? I think probably the main one is the one that we talked about was that the colour gives an idea of quality and in a way it does and that the color gives yeah it's real fatty you know so you get that jersey colostrum it's super yellow looks amazing but it doesn't actually give them necessarily the antibodies that they want so that's probably one of the main myths is Hmm. is that you've got to test it to see if it's good yeah and also of course the other myth is that the cow with the big udder that gives you 30 liters that's going to be the best No, no probably not at all in fact i would consider testing all the heifers they might give you a really small amount but you'll probably find it's quite good and what would be your biggest piece of advice for farmers this calving season yep that's easy and i'd say this for any animal health issue that you ever ask me about measure it that's really the key before you might make any decisions on changing what you're doing just measure it it's so easy it's pretty cheap to be fair just get some blood samples done 10 12 calves with the vets are they doing okay? If not, then you can start working, you know, and then you can work into measuring the colostrum. Then you can work into measuring bacteria, right? Everything should be made with information-based decisions. Don't make assumptions, eh? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's absolutely fascinating conversation. If people want to find out about your research or read any of your articles that have been published, um, where, where can they go? To be honest, we filter most of our stuff through Dairy NZ, Inside Dairy has just had an article on it. If you're wanting 
the more hardcore stuff, you know, like the publications. We haven't published it yet, but I have to have them submitted by September. So we'll be looking at trying to put those in the Journal of Dairy Science or, or something like that. But honestly, I'd, I'd direct it towards DairyNZ. Mm-hmm. Z can then always direct to me of, of what we've written. And we've had some of your articles in our past tech series magazines as well, haven't we? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely awesome chatting to you. Thank you. Yeah, catch you later. Thanks for tuning into Talking Dairy. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you'd like to check out more of our podcasts, go to dairynz.co.nz slash podcast or listen on your favourite podcast platform.